The reason we're in 2 Timothy when, in fact, this is a subset of our study of Paul's address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And the connection with Timothy is that Timothy, at a later date, is in Ephesus, which would be the very site of the what Paul had said in Acts 20. Well, it was actually Miletus, but they came down, the Ephesian elders, to, to hear him speak. And Paul addressed the elders, explaining what their duties are, what would happen in the future, and what's important. And now, now Paul in Rome, in prison, writes to Timothy with some details about what actually has happened um, after the fact and what the church is all about and what's important to emphasize. So I would say that besides Acts 20 um, and other obvious places such as the book of Ephesians, here in two, 1 and 2 Timothy, we covered some material on 1 Timothy before, you have what we need to define the church biblically. So the big goal, as we're going through Acts and Acts 20, is to define the church biblically, which includes defining the responsibility of elders and the ministries of the church, what's important, and so on. And the bigger theme is that church history is filled with false definitions of the church and the ministry, which we've talked about a lot. And it's critical that we go back to Scripture alone, and that we don't cherry-pick proof text out of context, but we make sure we understand the whole counsel of God, understand what has been said by God's authoritative spokespersons, Christ and his apostles, and that we allow what he has said to define for us what we're to be doing, how, to, how we're to live, what we're to believe, what the church is about, and what it means to be a part of the fellowship and be part of the family of God. So let's pray, and then we'll begin with 2 Timothy 2:19. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for answered prayer. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints and for giving us your word that we can study and learn and believe and find grace to live according to what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here we have 2 Timothy 2, 19 and 20. We're also going to look at the context of this. That's right, Jessica is up. Trying to make sure I don't get too much feedback here. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 19 and 20. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. So we'll unpack that, and we'll also look uh, at some of the context and we'll be going today also back into number 16 because it turns out Paul cites from the Septuagint some material from number 16. Number 16 has to do with Korah's rebellion. So the foundation that we're going to look at, the theme that's so important and utterly essential is who speaks authoritatively for God? Who has God appointed that speaks for him and whose words are the words of God that we are bound to and that we must live according to? Now in Ephesus, where we're um, finding this material, both from Acts 20 and from 1 and 2 Timothy, having to do with Ephesus, we find out that there's false teachers who arise, as Paul predicted, and they're leading people astray. And in the context of 2 Timothy 2, we have 
a couple of false teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Yeah, I'm glad Eric's here. He recently preached through all of this, so he, he's going to have uh, plenty to help us with as well. So let's go back to verse 19. I hear I have 19. I wanted to go back to... Oh, here it is. It's in my on my computer. Let's go back to verse 14 and get the context. It's amazing how simple this is and how few people do it. If somebody throws out a proof text and builds this big claim on their proof text, the first thing to do is to go back and read the context. And sometimes, and we've done this with our CIC podcast recently, the proof text, the way the teacher takes it, has absolutely nothing to do with even the topic under discussion. It just sounds a certain way, so they throw it out there. And try to give the weight of Scripture to something that has nothing to do with Scripture. So let's go to verse 14. I'll read it uh, for you. The context, we have named false teachers who challenge the very foundation of the faith by questioning who speaks authoritatively for God. That's a question we must answer. 2 Timothy 2.14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. This reminds us of something we saw in 1 Timothy, previous Sunday schools. Literally, the Greek would be word fights. And uh, you might say, well, isn't that what you're doing? You're, you're studying the words of the Bible and making applications. There's a difference between understanding what God said in whole sentences and in paragraphs and applying, believing and applying it than wrangling about words. We've seen enough of that in our day. Uh, for instance, the word of faith. Believe something in your mind and speak it, and then God has to perform what you tell him to do. That would be a word fight that's based on silliness rather than Scripture properly understood. And in that case, the preacher speaks for God and not God speaking for himself through his spokespersons. So word fights, what useless leads to ruin of the hearers, which is absolutely true. Verse 15, be diligent... To present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. So that tells us something about their word fights. They do, they should be ashamed, they're not. And they haven't done their diligence to understand what the text means. And they're making these grand claims, often based on either some cultural matter, some desired outcome, or whatever, rather than what the Bible actually says and what it means. Uh, Somebody handed me this after Sunday school last week, and uh, this illustrates how people want to conform to the culture rather than what the author means. This is handed to me, came out of a paper, Here's what it says. Language of the Lord's Prayer problematic church leaders say, it says. Here's what, here's what it says. The language in the Lord's Prayer might be problematic for some people, the Archbishop of York said Friday during his address to a meeting of the Church of England's ruling body. Now, we've talked a lot about the institutional church. Are there any archbishops in the Bible? Okay, so this is not even a valid ministry whatsoever. It's people taking title. Matthew 23 rebukes um, Jewish leadership (coughs) for doing that. But that's just kind of a couple thousand years of church history. We've got every title under the sun. But here's what the Archbishop says. The most reverend Stephen Cottrell glad he's not just reverend, he's the most reverend, (laughs) was specifically 
referring to the words, Our Father, which opens the prayer that Jesus taught when his disciples asked him how they should pray. I know the word Father is problematic, this is in quotes, for those who experience whose experience of earthly fathers has been destructive and abusive for all of us who have labored rather too much from an oppressively patriarchal group grip on life, Cottrell said in his address. Cottrell is the second most senior bishop of the church and the most senior in northern England, where he serves as the leader of 12 dioceses, alongside Archbishop of Canterbury, so on, so on, Church of England. Somebody handed me this. Well, that really brings back memories to me from the 90s when I was in seminary. And what happened at the end of the time I was there, and Eric and I have talked about this, really how we met, was that the psychological theories that are being promoted in the seminary are based on just that, people's experiences and the teachings that we would bring in church from the Bible had to be edited or changed or removed because of people's psychological state based on ideas that are simply theories. And one of the theories that was there in the 90s, and I see it still around, was that if you grew up in a home with a bad father, that it's impossible for you to understand God as father in any meaningful way and be able to be part of the church and to participate and grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And then they went from there to neutering the Godhead. And the thing that they were claiming was that these uh, male pronouns for the Holy Spirit, for, for the Trinity, and so on, are a problem because some people then can't be Christian and can't be part of the church and can't participate in the family of God because they have bad families. Well, here's something. There's degrees of how bad families are. That's undoubtable. Not to be doubted, I should say. In some cases, horrific. But what I object to is determinism. That you cannot find redemption, forgiveness, hope, change, and at the same time embrace the Bible for what it says and realize that God as Father is the standard, not what we experience with sinners. And furthermore, not to belittle whatever bad, really bad things people go through, every single human being came from a bad family. The descendants of Adam. In some cases, it's pathological. In some cases, it's sort of nice. But um, if you look at the movies that are popular, you'd have to say rich people have all the problems. They, I guess they're. I mentioned that to Diane. She said, well, they're just the ones that are interesting enough to make a movie out of. All people have problems. Now, this is absurd. It's absurd to say we cannot listen to Jesus Christ and his apostles because of psychological theory. Does that make sense? It's not right. And that's what Eric and I ran into. Let me just say this. The author determines the meaning. Christ and his apostles give us the faith once for, hand, for all hand down to the saints. And I'll also say this. Once you go to this accommodation of people's claims based on psychological theory from the culture, you'll always end up with no gospel, no authoritative teaching, no, nothing that's biblical. You'll end up with a neutered Bible and uh, 
the, 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 the faith once for all handed down to the saints will be vacuous and vacated, and what you'll have is psychology. And what we found out from the psychological theorists is that you never get done with it. I heard one such thing. I, I wrote a letter to the provost complaining about it, and she was saying the same kind of stuff. If you, think if you had a bad father, then God can't be called father, and you need therapy. And so I put my hand up because I was in this required thing that we had to go to, and I said, well, when do you get done with all this therapy so that you're normal? Well, never. So you're a client the rest of your life, and you never get to have righteousness, peace, joy, forgiveness of sins, redemption, atonement, the part of the family of God. All the things that we have promised to us don't come from those who would uh, pervert the Bible the way they want to do so. So when I saw this little article, I thought, here we go. We can't have the Lord's Prayer because somebody doesn't like it. Nobody has veto power over the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Does that make sense? And saying that doesn't mean we're callous about people going through real problems. It's just the opposite. The fact that there are really bad families is all the more reason why we need the family of God and why we need the faith once for all handed down to the saints and that we need the uh, redemption and sanctification and uh, changes and forgiveness so that we can function as God's family in a meaningful way under God. And one time we were having this debate about God can't have a gender, even though the Bible uses certain pronouns. I finally asked the person teaching it, the teacher, okay, so are we still believing that what Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, uh, no one can come to the Father but by me. We have to come to the Father through Jesus. Are we still believing that? Yes. Well, wasn't Jesus in his incarnation a male person? Yes. So we're supposed to give up anything that would require anybody to come to God through a male person type figure when Jesus said that they have, we have to go through him. He's a male person. So what problem did we just solve? That's what I said in class. The whole place just hushed and nobody said anything. They were stunned. Why didn't they think about that? Well, they did. They didn't. I brought it up. Go ahead. All in Paul. an effort to define the church biblically. I want to go back to verse 15. It says, uh, be diligent to present yourself self-approved to God and so on and so forth. Uh, the question is, um, a lot of times you want to be approved by a synod or an archbishop or somebody like that. I think that's, it says here, approved to God. Right. And yet God does use people in authority, uh, deacons, elders, and so on and so forth. He does use people. And um, so that's where I find uh, kind of difficult. Okay. Let me speak to that. It's a very good question. When you have, that's why we have to, why we've been in Acts 20 and then 1 and 2 Timothy, okay? The requirements of elders is that they're um, solid in exegesis, the study of scripture, and the understanding of the faith. And that that's not because only elders know the Bible, just the opposite. We all are, we believe in the priesthood of every believer. But when problems come up, they have, they have to be adjudicated. Hymenaeus and Philetus were claiming the resurrection already happened. And Timothy was was there in, in uh, Ephesus. And so you need to have not only equipped elders approved to be able to handle the word of truth, we need to educated everyone, the body of Christ, so that we can judge prophecy. Even if someone who is an approved elder gives a teaching that needs correcting, we want to hear feedback. No one is infallible. Uh, the scripture itself is the word of God that we need to learn and hear. 
So that's a good point. That's what Paul's saying here. Look at it. Be diligent to present yourself approved by God. Now, why would, how would Timothy present himself approved by God? Well, it tells us here. Uh, uh, not ashamed accurately handing the word of God. Do the study. Study. Know the material. Understand the text that you're going to teach. And dig into it and spend the time. It's worth, if that took all the time that I had, it would be worth that because at least you get that right. Whatever else is wrong. And even when I was in the Assemblies of God, which is a Pentecostal organization, when I was there in 71, 72, 73, they had taken a turn towards scholarship and away from the firebrand tent meeting type because of William Branham and his destruction. William Branham had destroyed a huge section of Pentecostalism, uh, and he died in, a, I think, a car wreck in 1965, six years before I ended up at Bible college or even converted, for that matter. And they saw the answer to the William Branhams, who was, uh, well, they claim he did more miracles than any of these preachers. He was a uh, Jesus-only Pentecostal, denied the Trinity, and just flew by the seat of his pants. And he's buried under a pyramid, and Benny Hinn got his anointed from William Branham's pyramid. Okay, so you go into all this stuff. So they, to avoid that, they went into scholarship during those years. Here's what I was taught when I was taught homiletics at North Central Bible College. I think it was Brother Kranz who was the teacher. It's pretty interesting that they were saying that. Here's what he said. Whatever text you're preaching on, I, we want you to study so thoroughly that if it, could, if it should happen that when you're preaching that Sunday, a traveling professor who is an expert in the Bible happened to be in town and visited your church, even if that would happen, you know the text you're preaching on better than anybody else is there. That's what they told me in Assemblies of God Bible College. And I, remember, I never forgot that. And um, I want to say thank you to the people. So that's really no different than what Paul's telling Timothy. Know your text and read the context. Make sure you understand it. Why? Because there's nothing more powerful than the word of God accurately taught. Teaching the truth through scripture to the people of God will never harm anybody. They may say they're bored with it. I don't hear that that much, but it could happen. But I'd rather hear the truth from an inarticulate, boring preacher than hear air from a flamboyant hot shot. Right. <laughs> you know, Bob, I was just reminded, um, Carla Dahl that you were mentioning from Bethel, one of the things that they try to do in teaching sanctification at Bethel is they always wanted you to process your past. So for them, the key to sanctification was going in and finding out how bad your father was or how bad your mother was. And that's why you couldn't use patriarchal type of language. You couldn't talk about the father, etc. What's really interesting, a good way to refute that is found in Philippians 3.13, where Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul didn't spend his life processing the past. That's all done, and it's buried with Christ. That's the image of baptism. And so we as Christians are those who are pressing forward in sanctification, looking for the promises of God. If you're looking forward to the promises of God, you'll be sanctified. If you look back to the problems of the past, you'll always be under the thumb of some evil that happened. And you'll never, you, no, you there, just won't there, get there any no better. Escape. There's no escape. There's no escape because it's still going to be the past and you'll never catch up. How many experiences did everybody have, minute by minute, more than you can remember? 
but the promises of God don't change. Absolutely correct. And I lived through that. I was in a group that did counseling constantly in the 70s, and then at the end saw the problem with it. There's no end. You just find more problems. The more you look, the more you find. But if you get focused on growth and relationships in the body of Christ, and in fact, it's just the opposite. Being part of a fellowship of saved sinners who have a common faith and the work of grace, we find hope and joy. We pray for one another, and God helps us. And if he can use us, I find so much encouragement just to see what God does in other people's lives. And that's what it's all about. Now, notice, um, handling, handling accurately the word of truth, verse 16, but avoid worldly chatter, worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Remember the word fights. Verse 17, the talk will spread like, spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying, verse 18, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So here's the word fights, the claims, the uh, things that draw people aside. Maybe this is it, maybe that's it. Brings us to our text. Nevertheless, despite all that, nevertheless, the found, firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Now, according to my, uh, to the text, I, I went and looked this up myself. Number 16.5 is probably what's alluded to or cited by Paul here. And number 16.5 I, I just happened to bring that along. Little did I know, when you get a laser printer, you better buy a lot of paper. It's easy to print things. Here's what it says. Number 16.5. Um, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his. There's our phrase. The Lord will show who is his and who is holy and who will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose, he will bring him near to himself. Now, what was going on with Korah? Well, Korah, if you, have you heard of Korah's rebellion? Korah challenged the idea that Moses spoke for God. And he suggested that he and his buddies would be better suited for that, and why listen to Moses? But it's a very serious thing that Moses was the one who spoke for God because it was to, to Moses that God appeared at the burning bush. It was Moses that God used to bring the people out of Egypt, and it was Moses who went to Mount Sinai and were given was given the ten words. And so he was God's authoritative spokesperson. But here is a group that would deny that Moses spoke for God. So they had this test, Numbers 16, 6 and 7. Do this, take censers for yourself, Korah and all your company, put fire in them and lay incense on them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. The man whom the Lord chose be the one who is holy. You've gone far enough you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. It is not enough for you that the God of Israel separated you from the rest of the congregation to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord (coughs) and stand before the congregation. Then he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers. Are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore, you and your coming here gathered will go on, verse 12. And so they bring them up, and they brought them out. And uh, they wouldn't come, isn't it enough? Are you the one who brought us out? And did you bring us there? Of course, they're still in the wilderness. Verse 15, Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, to Yahweh, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have done any harm. So what happened? Do you know what happened to Korah? And his buddies, 
the earth opened up and swallowed them and they dropped in right directly into Sheol. They didn't pass go. They didn't get $200. Kaboom. Now, this doesn't happen every time somebody claims to speak for God who doesn't. It's what's called exemplary judgment. What's an exemplary judgment in the Bible? Yes, it shows what God thinks about a certain thing. That's right. Noah, the flood, is an example. Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that it's an example for those thereafter. It shows what God thinks about it and that there will be, in the end, certain judgment. So exemplary judgments don't mean that someone who isn't can't prosper teaching falsehood. People have built whole empires teaching falsehood. Massive organizations and structures teaching falsehood. The exemplary judgment tells us that we need to find out who spoke for God and who speaks for God so that we don't get caught up with a new Korah and meet the same doom, albeit only in eternity. Does that make sense? So that brings us back. So there's an allusion to Korah. The Lord knows those who are his. Now, the firm foundation of God stands. So the foundation reminds us of several things in the New Testament. And um, let me see here. Whoops, I goofed up. Got to get in the right window here. So um, here's what a statement I made in my notes here. Foundation is a key term, and it's the very foundation of the faith that's under attack by those who challenge God's authoritative spokespersons, like Moses was challenged. And um, therefore, what indeed is the foundation of the church so that we know what the valid teaching of the church is? Um, Well, we have several passages we can look at, not the least of which is in uh, Ephesians 2. Let me see what I have in my notes here. Here it is. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Let me read that. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, the analogies, sometimes it talks about Jesus Christ as the foundation, and here it says Jesus Christ is the cornerstone with his apostles and prophets. So what we often say is Christ and his apostles, or Christ and his apostles and prophets. Those are the ones who are like Moses, under the Old Covenant, who laid out the binding authority of teaching. Okay? So the church must be defined by Scripture alone and not by church history or by the culture or by psychological theory or by success and popularity. It must be the foundation that as God has defined once for all. And every believer who's part of God's household, part of the household of God, everyone must be equipped for the work of the ministry. Um, There's a term that you hear uh, that's really just a redundancy. Have you heard the term lay people? Well, in the Greek, the word laos means people. So they're saying people, people. So you have the clergy and the lay people. Well, the clergy are people and the people are people. So it's really not saying anything. The priesthood of every believer is telling us that, and the equipping the saints for the work of the ministry is telling us that anyone who is trained in Scripture by whatever means, 
studying and showing themselves approved, studying the Word of God and looking at it and applying it and seeing implications and applications. That's why prophecy can be judged. An elder can go astray and be corrected by anyone. So I won't use the term lay person because it's assuming that the uh, institutional church is a valid thing. It's not. Everyone who's part of the household of God is built on the same foundation, being built up in the faith. And anyone with the truth can challenge someone, even someone with a, the only offices we would even talk about as valid are elders and deacons. It's all the Bible gives us. And elders aren't are simply to live what all Christians are called to live. They don't have some unique status that came from somewhere. Do you want to discuss? Maybe why you can, I'm going to ask you about Eric. You've been in Matthew. Is there any way that the building on the rock in Matthew 7 would apply to this? If you want to address that. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, the rock, the foundation, obviously, is is Christ and his apostles, as you pointed out. And another text that you taught us on recently is 1 Corinthians 3, where Mm -hmm. Paul talks about building according to that foundation. And the idea is that the foundation is in keeping with the gospel. So remember, everyone who built in a way that was not compatible with the gospel, their works are burned up. And so even though they themselves may be saved, if they spent their whole lives building in such a manner that it was not corresponding to the foundation of the gospel, they would suffer loss. And so that's a reminder to all of us, you know, yes, once saved, always saved, or maybe better yet, the true saints persevere. But at the same time, we have to remember that our ministry is always focused on the foundation, as Bob is telling us. It's on who Christ is, what he's done. It's Christ and his apostles. Right. And so the reason for equipping the saints is that everything we do should be focused on equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and then actually carrying out the work of the ministry, which includes fellowship with one another, prayer, taking care of practical needs, uh, making sure that the family of God is a real thing. It's not simply um, a subset of the culture out there but that we have a real relationship with Christ and that we really are part of this household and we care for each other and pray for each other. And, and there's so much of this that's amazingly applicable and you just see it happening as we experience. Uh, we, we all at some point have serious times of need in this fallen world. And we are so blessed we know the saints are praying for us and we need that and we need one another so Korah by the way this rebel in the Old Testament was probably according to some of the sources that I studied distorting something that Moses himself said in or heard from God in Exodus so if we want to look at Exodus 19 5 and 6 we'll see something that's really fulfilled under the new covenant Exodus 19 5 and 6 Exodus 19 5 and 6 now then if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now those words are repeated in the new covenant. Korah evidently said, okay, I'm going to take, take you up on that. It's not Moses, it's me and my buddies. And they challenged Moses. But it was Moses who was appointed by God, not Korah. And we know he fell into the pit. So he may have distorted that. Yes, Scott. I was just going to say, even the uh, supposed first pope uh, proclaims what you're saying in 1 Peter 2. 
Yeah, one Peter 2. Um, do you have that open there? Go ahead and read it, 1 Peter 2. I wrote an article about it if you... The whole chapter? <laughs> Go ahead. All righty. Is it about 15? Well, I'll start with verse 4. Oh, it talks, okay. talks about living stones. And coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Amen. Good. So there is the priesthood of every believer. So um, let, this is essential. Let's get down to the uh, key issue. The first truths that you have to understand to define the church is the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. You start there. It's real basic. God has spoken. The difference between a biblically defined church and Christendom and the institutional church, for the most part, is just that. The church is the priesthood of every believer. The the authoritative and binding teaching have already been given once for all, and they're found in Scripture. The decrees of people in church history to this, that, or the other thing are not binding on the consciences of Christians. I don't care what title somebody has. The archbishop says our father, as the part of the Lord's Prayer, is a big problem. We may have to do something about it. That is not binding on the conscience of any Christian. Furthermore, those who are not born of God or not joined to God, it's one spirit, filled with the spirit, those who do not truly know him may be part of the visible church. We recognize that. They may not even realize that they haven't yet been converted but they're not really truly part of the family of God. The institutional church wants to fill the building. By the way, the church is not a building. It's a people. Want to fill the building with as many religious consumers as possible. That's not the church. Go ahead. Yeah, just a quick comment that that archbishop that you're talking about, he's denying the omnipotence of God. You know, he's denying the sovereignty of God. I mean, that's just enormous heresy. When he says that, that that you, you objects to the Lord's prayer or the the disciples' prayer, I mean that's just an enormous uh, heresy. What he's saying, if you think about it. Yes, and that's what generally happens. And it, it used to be a gradual process, but now it's so quick. Ten years, if something can total. I watched it. I started in '92, and by '99, total change went from almost every professor was trustworthy, with a few exceptions, in 92. By 99, a couple professors were trustworthy, and the rest were gone. That's how fast. Ten years. Now, how do you survive in that kind of situation? You cling to what you know the truth is. You have to be trained, a workman, can actually handle the word of truth. You need to search the scriptures. You need to be like the Bereans. Search the scriptures. And be willing to say it. It doesn't matter who you are. Now, I know some some of us have a more extrovert personality, and I never, ever was bashful about challenging professors. But I also was not bashful about commending professors and rejoicing in how they helped me learn the truth. 
the, the church, the local gathering, we need to do that. We need to help one another search the scriptures, believe the scriptures, believe the promises, and be the family of God. And if no institution ever comes of it, hallelujah. You won't have an institution promoting evil with somebody's name on it. And the Lord has his flock scattered here and there all over the world, and they all love the same truth. We find that out a lot as we hear from people. So, continuing here, the Lord knows those who are his. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is abstained from wickedness. First of all, if we have clear, authoritative, binding revelation from God, Scripture alone, we're able to distinguish between righteousness and wickedness. The culture is not going to help us do that. And more so than you can imagine. The culture is telling us good is evil and evil is good. Turn on the news, good is evil, evil is good. And evil is anyone who has firm convictions grounded in the word of God. Those are the intolerable things that will not be allowed into the public discourse. But despite that, we have every opportunity to preach the word, to share the gospel, and to teach the truth. Whether it's approved of by the culture or not, what we need to know is what it says right here, approved of God. How do you know that? By studying the scripture and making sure our implications and applications logically are connected to the text. So name the name of the Lord is to carry the name Christian, believer in Jesus Christ. Some use the term follower of Jesus Christ or disciple. And this we do not want wickedness to characterize us, not that we're sinless or that we don't fall into things we must repent of. But the biblical standard tells us what to ask forgiveness for and to flee from and what to pursue and embrace. Pursue righteousness and so on. We'll get to that. Flee from these things. Pursue these things. That should be what happens as we hear the word of God and share it with each other and pray for one another and encourage one another. That should happen. It should be clear what we want. May God change me so there's more righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit and less bitterness and wrath. That's a good outcome. Now, in large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware and some honor and some dishonor. Let me comment on that. Um, the vessels analogy is very um, graphic. It would be, to be discreet, it would be the difference between, in our world, your best silverware, the china that only comes out on Easter, the really good stuff that you have for a festive feast, or commode. Dishonor would be that kind of pot. The garbage can and the commode, that's dishonor. Not that you don't need those too, but this is an analogy. Okay? In the analogy in Timothy here, the dishonor would be Hymenaeus and Philetus saying the resurrection already happened, denying the future resurrection. Honor would be those approved of God who would, te who would teach the truth and explain the doctrines of the faith that are once for all handed down in the faith and expound the word of God, and then pray for one another, care for one another, and so on. Go ahead, Eric. You know, one implication, I think, of Hymenaeus and Philetus saying that the resurrection had already occurred, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.15, 
the resurrection happens at the parousia of Christ, mm -hmm. which is the technical term for the coming of Christ. Preterism says the parousia happened in 70 AD. Good point. Therefore, the resurrection happened in 70 AD. Therefore, how are preterists not just like him, Aeneas and Philetus, who said the resurrection has already occurred? So it's the same heresy. Yeah. We have to reject preterism. It's the it's the heresy of him, Aeneas and Philetus. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I, this book I keep talking about, I've been reading, I finished it. And I got notes on every pages, turned over pages, marked out pages. So now sometime i got to write an article about it. It's amazing. The book is uh, published by YWAM, and it's claiming it's, uh, it's called Discipling Nations. So I can give you, now I've read the whole thing. Here's the theme. theme. Taking the Lord's Prayer and the Great Commission in Matthew, they claim that we're supposed to bring the kingdom to pass now by Christianizing the culture. That's the claim. And that the way we Christianize the culture is by uh, affirming a biblical worldview, which I wouldn't want to argue against, that would mean we think a certain way and that that'll have a positive effect on the culture. Now, it's not to be doubted that Western civilization functions better than animism or materialism. You know, those are the three things that they talk about. Western civilization, based on the idea that God created the whole universe out of nothing, it's true, and that God has given us moral law, that if we live according to that, is good and beneficial. That work is valuable, which I would agree with. But where the problem lies with this book is in eschatology. Eric just identified that. The thing that I think we have to deal with is that eschatology, the study of what God's prophesied about the end, is just as important as every other kind of doctrine, if not more so. And the, it's not optional. Some people say, well, everybody has a different eschatology, so just throw your hands up, choose one. But what Eric and I have said for a long time now, your eschatology will determine your ecclesiology. And what do I mean by that? Well, eschatology is the prophesied future. The ecclesiology is the definition of the church and its ministry and its and its message and its mission. And because the people who want to Christianize the pagan culture are have a faulty eschatology, in my opinion, which is what, what I'll deal with, their ecclesiology is bad because they have a different mission for the church. Rather than discipling persons who have been born of God, who are built on the rock and have already entered the kingdom by coming under the reign of the king, by repenting, transferred from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of his beloved son, they have sort of an uh, amorphous, Christianized, current kingdom now that we're supposed to be fighting for. And there's no uh, wrath of God that's going to come suddenly and unexpectedly. Never, ever mention. Now, Eric, you have the book, too, no? If you look at page 52 and 53, once you have it at home, I'll try to email that to you. They, they dismiss the eschatology that I believe in a few sentences as being defeated and hopeless. In other words, if we believe that we need to rescue the perishing and... Get, so people get out of darkness into light and that we baptize believers not just everybody happens to be born into a Christian home and that we warn people that God's wrath could be poured out suddenly and unexpectedly 
and that God still has a plan for uh, ethnic, national ethnic Israel and things like that, then we are escapists, and we're not going to get about get about go about the business of building the kingdom. Eric and I believe the kingdom is built as one by one by one persons are converted, transferred into it, and it's placed on the rock, built up as living stones, and that that is separate from the world's culture. Furthermore, the claims that Christianized Christendom which they have to admit didn't exist until about 300 and some A.D., uh, has always failed. Is Rome the kingdom of God? Well, they want to include that, sort of, in an umbrella. Here's the problem. The key passages, which are Matthew 5, the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as in heaven, they believe that's a gradual process that happens through having an entire culture adopt a Christian worldview or a Judeo-Christian worldview. I believe that's a prayer for the return of Christ. That's a big difference. And the Great Commission, discipling nations. So I'm thinking about, as a title for the article, this one, um, Christianizing Pagans. That's exactly what they're doing, Christianizing pagans. And here's how I would explain that. Now, here's what's lacking, by the way, before I say that. Zero, zero exegetical work. Zero going into the text and the context showing what they claim about the Lord's Prayer is accurate biblically and what they claim about the Great Commission is accurately accurate biblically. Never. It's just thrown out as a proof text. No work. No proof that they're approved. No proof that they did their homework. No proof they know what they're talking about. Zero. Here, think about this. How does Matthew define a disciple? Now, Eric's preaching through Matthew. You're the resident expert. Well, we've read Matthew. Is a disciple in Matthew a part of a bigger culture who has a a quasi-Christian worldview? No. How does... Well, let's just go to the rock. Yeah. A disciple is not somebody who belongs to a certain culture. So if someone is not converted, how do you baptize a culture? says baptizing them in the name. How do you baptize the culture? Okay, uh, so I got all these questions. Never comes up. Never. They just throw it out there and everybody, oh yeah, let's do it. Let's build hospitals and all this stuff. Good things to do. Why wham? They got their mercy ship. Good thing to do. But eventually, we already done it. We already have Yale and Harvard and we have all these institutions, most of which now are violently opposed to God and his word and are wanting to, they can't even distinguish between a man and a woman. Our Christian culture doesn't know what's a man, what's a woman. And these guys are writing a book telling us that's our role, have a Christianized culture. It never happens, it never works. But if someone is really made a disciple, they're really converted, and they're really baptized in a biblical sense as someone who buried the old person, came out of Egypt, the water closes, there's no going back, you're going to serve God, and his word is your marching order, not the culture, that person knows the difference between a man and a woman. The culture does it. Churches with Christian names on do not. Educational institutions with Christian names on do not. Christians do. So therefore, when we define the church, we have to define it biblically, and our definitions have to be grounded in biblical exegesis, not slogans. Now, 
I'm out of time, but Eric and I, next week I'm going to preach, and the week after Eric's going to take my slot. So I had the sermon ready for the six, because Eric has something he has to be at. We're going to run into another slogan in Corinth. Dear ones, slogans won't do. Slogans won't do. Yeah, another slogan. A slogan won't, yeah, it's my slogan. Slogans won't do. That's my slogan. And really what Paul does, he takes their slogan, modifies them, and throws it back at them. The slogan, we need to do, it's no better than the work that went into defining it biblically. So here's the bottom line. The Lord knows those who are his, which comes back from Korah. So Korah had a slogan, but it was false. Here, everyone who names the name of the Lord is abstained from wickedness. God changes lives. Once we find out that some of this, whatever they call gender-affirming care, is wickedness, we will not allow it or believe it or tolerate it, and we will stand against it because we're damaging people. The Christianized culture could not be more pagan, utterly pagan. So that's that's, uh, what we learned. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness and grace. Thank you as we fellowship and celebrate your supper today. Pray for Pastor Eric that he continue, as he continues to preach the word of God, that our hearts will be open to the truth and we might be changed by your grace. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.